Well, good morning. My name is Dave. If I haven't met you yet, I uh, hope to meet you after service. It is great to be here this morning as always, and always a privilege to get to uh, serve you guys by preaching from God's Word. Let me start by reading our text. We'll pray and then we'll jump into it. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. We'll start in verse 1 and go through verse 10. This is starting in verse 1. To the church of Thessalonica and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and that through it, you nourish our souls. Uh, as we come this morning, we come from different places and different things going in our lives, but we pray that you have a word for us, that you do what you do through your word and Holy Spirit, that you move and shape us into the image of your Son for your glory and for our joy. Amen. There's a lot of terrible exercises out there. I think we can all agree about that. I don't know if you've ever had to do a burpee, uh, but that's where you have to like, kind of like jump and then do a push-up and jump up again. If, if you ever have to do one of those, you're going to question God's delight in you. It's just awful. A lot of terrible exercise out there. There's no exercise I hate more than running. Running is dreadful. A few years ago, I actually tried to get into it. I, you know, bought the shirt, I bought the shoes, I bought the socks, I bought the watch. Worst financial investment of my life. And I did try it for a while. It's not like I just tried it once and and stopped. I, I, I gave it a good college try. And I would go out, and I would run, and after a mile, I'd start feeling the pains and the angst and the, the, the tightness in the chest. And of course, I, I, I would feel just discouraged and tired and beaten up. I went out all excited, and I came back in walking and discouraged. I wonder if you have ever felt this way in life and in your journey of faith. If you have ever felt tired, beaten up, discouraged. My, my question for us this morning is simply this. In this marathon of faith, when we feel exhausted, when we feel discouraged, when we feel defeated... How are we picked back up and given the strength and energy and determination 
to carry on. The church that Paul is writing to is is in need of somebody to come alongside them and help pick them up. Paul was actually the founder of this church in Thessalonica. We read about it in Acts 17. Paul went there, he preached the gospel, and many people in this city actually believed this gospel. And then things got hostile real quick. Paul was there three weeks, and by the end of those three weeks, the Jewish leaders were flipping out, the city leaders were going nuts, so much so that a mob shows up to this home, which is the home base of the church there. Only took three weeks, and everything got really out of hand. Now, Paul and his other companions have to flee for their safety. But imagine you are one of these believers, these new believers. Just three weeks ago, you had somebody come into town who you'd never met before, preach this Jesus. You've put your faith in Jesus, and now all of a sudden, three weeks go by, and the world is turned upside down. Everything is in chaos. You'd be wondering, did I make the right decision? Did I make the right decision in deciding to follow this Jesus? Because in the three weeks since I've believed, everything has seemed messed up. Everything that I held is now gone, and life is in utter chaos. I wonder if you are, or if you've ever found yourself asking those similar questions. It it might not be be because of direct persecution like this church faced. It, It might be because of the ostracization that you feel from friends, family, co-workers, spouses because of your faith in Christ. Perhaps the, the sense that life hasn't actually gotten better since you decided to follow Jesus, but it's actually gotten harder has caused you to ask, is it still actually worth following Jesus? Maybe it's just been a, a season of spiritual valleys. It seems like darkness has just covered you. And you are literally legitimately asking those questions. Is the gospel actually true? And did I and do I still genuinely believe it? And what Paul encourages these believers with in these verses, and what I want us to see this morning, is simply this. Be assured of the gospel by seeing the impact of the gospel. When we find ourselves asking these questions insecure of the truth, when we find ourselves wondering, is the gospel worthwhile? And when we find ourselves not sure about our own personal commitment and devotion to Jesus, look no further than the effect Jesus has and the difference that Jesus makes. In doing so, you'll regain confidence and you'll be able to keep going because you've been assured You've been reassured of the gospel by seeing the impact of the gospel. In verses 2 and 3, we see this prayer of thanksgiving that Paul gives of the Thessalonians. Now, he knows that this is a young group of believers, and they're going through this really hard time of persecution. So we find out later in the letter that Paul actually sent Timothy to go and check in on them. And Timothy has now checked in on them, returned to Paul, and said, they're actually standing firm. They're under intense heat, intense pressure, but they haven't moved. 
And so Paul now is writing back, having heard Timothy's report, and he is giving thanks that they are standing firm. And he, he points to these three virtues, these three foundational virtues of Christian faith, faith, love, and hope. And, and he praises these attributes in them, and essentially what he's doing, right, anytime you tell somebody like, hey, you're doing a really good job, you're reinforcing that thing that they're doing. You're, you're trying to make sure, like, you keep doing this thing. So he is trying to reinforce their faith, love, and hope in the midst of all this trial. But Paul knows that if he is going to reinforce their steadfastness, it's only going to be effective if he reassures them concerning the gospel that they have committed themselves to. So Paul is going to point to three ways. The gospel impacts believers, the way the gospel impacts the world, to reassure them, and most certainly to reassure us, to keep going. And following Jesus. First, we see in verses 4 and 5, be reassured by the gospel's impact in the past. Let me reread verse 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So why is Paul so certain, why can Paul say so confidently that God has chosen them, right? That's like something that you can't just necessarily see. It's not like God just audibly told him that. He he can say that so confidently because he points back to when they actually first received the gospel. See, here's the first move that Paul makes. Apparently, in making sure that this church keeps moving forward, He thinks it's going to be necessary for them to look back. He's telling them, remember when you first heard the gospel? When you first heard that story of redemption? That God created man and woman in his image, and he loved them, and he was in perfect relationship with them. But then, as humans always do, we rebelled against his loving rule And we usurped his throne, trying to be our own kings and queens, making the rules. And and this is the story of humanity, how we have rebelled and sinned against him. But God loved humanity. And so in order to reconcile them to himself, he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, die on a cross for their sins, and was raised again so that they can have new life. This is the story of the gospel, that Jesus has lived, died, and raised again so that we can be in relationship with God. Paul's like, remember when you first heard that story? It wasn't just empty words. It wasn't simply that you had something bad last night at dinner and now it's making you think funny. It wasn't just a momentary, uh, exciting thing that you now came across. No, no, no. The gospel isn't just words that you believe. It is the transforming power of God that we experience. And in being reconciled to God, we're brought out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. This is the story of the gospel. I wonder how often you and I find ourselves looking back at our own stories. I mean, how often do you take time to think about the different ways, the different ways God moved in your life 
in order to reconcile you to him. I know it's not something that I regularly practice and something that I certainly took time to do this week, just reminding myself of all the ways that God has been faithful and the power that he has brought into my life through the gospel to transform my life. I think about it this way. One of the pastors who trained me, anytime he would marry a couple, he would ask each individual of that couple to write down their story, to write down how they met, how they started dating, what that dating relationship was like, and, and of course, like how they got engaged. Now, they each had to write it down separately, and they weren't allowed to share it or compare notes with each other. And then during the ceremony, this pastor would have blended their stories and retold their love story to them. And then during the ceremony, he would also charge them to tell that story often, to tell it to one another, to tell it to their kids, to tell it to friends that they are being Uh, introduced to as they are building these relationships. And the point of doing that was marriage is hard. And if we can't remember how we fell in love and why we fell in love, it's going to be a lot more tempting to not stick with it. Tell it often. Tell your redemption story often. Whether that means this week you just take time to pray about it, whether it means you take time to write it down, or you just grab a coffee with a brother and sister in Christ, share your story so that you'll be reassured of the gospel's impact in you. Because let's be honest, there's days you need to be reminded, and certainly I need to be reminded, that the gospel is actually working in our lives, that Jesus actually has transformed us that it wasn't just some wishful thinking way back when. It wasn't just something that we believed once and happened in our heads, but that something true and meaningful happened when we came to know Jesus. That even though we struggle and we fail and we get caught in sin and we feel the pressure of being a Christian in our world, God has and is working wonderful things in our lives. And when we see that, it's actually the evidence of his great love for us. Now, perhaps you're here and you've actually never had that moment where you've believed in the gospel. You don't have something to look back to. Well, here's the story. The question is, will you receive it? And if you have any questions about what the gospel is, how can I be sure what the Bible is, myself, Pastor Eric, Anybody here that you feel close to would love to engage in that conversation with you. Now, perhaps you've just been sitting in church for a long time. You're like, I've heard the gospel a million times over. I could write it down, no problem. But when I think about my life, I actually haven't seen that transformation. I can't look back the way that Paul's talking to the Thessalonians here and say for sure that I've experienced the gospel's power in the way that I desire. There's something there. I'm not going to say what that is because I don't know, but once again, that is something to allow Pastor Eric, another brother and sister in Christ, walk in to that place with you. 
We're reassured by the gospel by looking at the past impact of the gospel. But then, like, what do we do with the present, right? It's like, okay, that's all, that's all good back there, but, like, we, we live in the present. I mean, <laughs> we'd like to have a little bit of reassurance now, too. And this is where Paul moves next in verses 6 through 8. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in, in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need nothing to say. Paul's now reassuring them of the gospel's impact by pointing them to the present impact of the gospel. And he gives this quick little pattern for ministry, right? He's like, you guys started imitating me, and now you're an example to everyone else. We see this, this model for ministry throughout Scripture, specifically the New Testament. I mean, sometimes we, we just want to try and give information and think that will be the way that people grow. And of course, information is necessary, but it doesn't actually transform by itself. We need models. The Christian lifestyle, how to follow Jesus, it's not just taught, it's caught. And so my challenge to you is whether you're looking for a model or whether you are looking to help somebody and be a model for them, get going with it. Because you can read every book in the world. That might not necessarily be what you need. You might need somebody who's in flesh to help you grow or to help them grow. But of course, Paul's not just giving them like uh, a perspective here of, of how you do ministry, right? It's, it's not like he's just writing his philosophy of ministry down. And so, so you've got to ask yourself, like, okay, why, why is Paul bringing this up? I think what Paul's doing here, again, he, he's reassuring them in the midst of trial of the impact of the gospel. And I think what he is doing is he is driving the point that their suffering God is utilizing in the furthering of the gospel. Understandably so, these people would be questioning, what is this all for? Is God using this situation for any good? Now, I know all of us have things in our lives that we think that exact question about, right? How is God using the present suffering, the present trial, actually to further the gospel? I'm sure, like me, you've asked, is God using me in any meaningful way? Or am I just passively coasting through this life? It can be discouraging when we don't see how God is impacting other people for the gospel through us. You might feel like you're trying to start conversations with neighbors and coworkers, but you're not getting any traction. You might feel like you're looking for opportunities to share the gospel. You might feel like you're trying to invest in other believers, but you just haven't found the way to do it yet. That can be discouraging make us want to just be like, you know what? I think I'm just going to coast. I think I'm just going to come on Sunday. I'll sit. I'll listen. Give to the offering. And I'm going to check out. But God, everybody who he has redeemed, he has a place for them in his redemptive mission. Everybody who has put their faith in him, has something to contribute. 
Paul's like, you might not see it. Paul's saying to them, you might not see how God is working through you for the furthering of the kingdom. So let me tell you. I went here, I went here, I went here. Everywhere I'm going, all I'm hearing is how your faith is impacting others. I think one thing that we we see from this, and we should certainly take from this, is when you see somebody else in our midst who is stepping out and serving and making and impacting, letting God work through them, let them know, right? Because sometimes we don't see it ourselves and we can feel discouraged. We need somebody else to be like, what you are doing, the way you are serving is making a difference, I wonder what we will say of our time here in eternity. Paul's very clear that their impact, he says, the word's gone forth. Will we be able to say in eternity that the word has gone forth from our time at Brainerd? I think there are wonderful things that we are doing as a church. I mean, Eric has done such a great job of getting us connected with the community. I know we're pitching in. Just keep pitching in. The word will go forth from this place if we're faithful. As we model what we have seen, the men and women who have gone before us, as we model what we've seen in the life of Jesus, God's going to work through it. I know it's hard to believe sometimes that God's going to work through this ragtag bunch of people. But God works through his people. That's what makes it so special because you would never take this group and be like, oh, yeah, 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 they're going to make an impact. They're going to make a difference in the community. It's the power of the gospel. And here's the thing, too. As we get going with it, as we get going with putting ourselves out there, not just sitting on the bench, it is so contagious. As we get an excitement for how God will use us to impact this community and the world with the gospel. If we're not able to participate and contribute in the gospel impact, we're always going to be questioning, what is this for? Tell you real quick what your life is for. Matthew 28, Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's what we as individuals are doing. It's what we as the church are to be doing. You want to find purpose and meaning in life, there's no greater cause to give yourself to. We see the gospel's impact in the past. We see the gospel's impact in the present. What does Paul have to say to reassure us about the gospel's impact In the future, let's look at the last two verses. For they themselves, the people who have been impacted, uh, sorry, for they themselves, themselves being the people who have been impacted by the Thessalonians' faith, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who has delivered us from the wrath to come. Even with the gospel's impact in the past, and even with the gospel's current impact in the present, Paul knows that if this 
group of believers is to remain faithful to the end, they're going to need to be reassured about the gospel's ultimate final victory. It is our only hope in life that one day Jesus actually will return and set all things right. If our hope is in things in this life, if our hope is that somehow in following Jesus our lives are going to be perfect and easy, if our hope is that God is going to fulfill every single dream you have this side of heaven, you are going to be very disappointed. In fact, I would say that at some point that disappointment might actually crush you if you place your hope ultimately in things here and now. It's a hope that will crush you if we only have hope now. It will rob us of our faith and most certainly rob us of our joy in following Jesus. But this group, when you think about it, they waited their entire lives for Jesus to come back. Clearly, he did not come back in their lifetime. They waited their entire lives, died. For 2,000 years, generation after generation of Christians waited for Jesus to come back, died. Hasn't done it yet. He, this is like, you know, the hope that we have that Jesus is going to return and restore us and bring back his perfect kingdom and that he's going to fix everything the way it should be, the way we all desire it to be, hasn't happened yet. Now, I'm notoriously late to things. Uh, my friends affectionately, I, I like to think it's affectionately, I don't know if it actually is, they call it Dave time. Dave time's a good like 15 to 30 minutes late. And so if I'm not there five, ten minutes after this thing has started, like nobody's concerned, like, oh, did something happen to Dave? If I didn't show up for like an hour, they still might be like, eh, I wonder what's going on. If I didn't show up for two hours, they'd be like, is Dave actually coming? Like, is he actually, I know he said he was, but is he actually going to eventually show up? In the midst of living in a broken world, it can be an ultimate comfort to know that the king is coming with his kingdom. We can have that certainty, and we can be assured of it. We, we know that intellectually, but I don't know about you guys, Sometimes I'm like my friends when I haven't shown up. Is he actually coming? Are we actually going to do this at some point? Because the world just seems to keep on going as it's going. Life just keeps on moving on as it's moving on. Should I, should I actually orient my entire hope on a life to come and not this one? Should I orient my life just waiting for Jesus even though he has said 2,000 years ago he was going to come and still hasn't? I mean, we have to ask ourselves that question. Is it actually worth waiting for? And here's how Paul redirects our attention. Here's how he reassures us that what we are waiting for, the hope we have, is definitely worth waiting he points us to the resurrection. The resurrection is the vindication that Jesus is who he says he is. The resurrection of, of Jesus is this picture, this foretaste of this new creation that he will 
ultimately bring. It's the assurance of his return. We always want to look into the future and look to signs of Christ's return. Paul's like, you got the sign. God got up from the dead. You don't need to look any further. This is Paul's comfort to this young church that's feeling insecure in the midst of persecution. Here's the comfort he gives. Jesus is raised from the dead. Like, we win. Like, I know it doesn't feel that way now. But at some point, he's going to come back and we win. It's not that he's like saying you guys aren't suffering. It's not that he's diminishing the reality of their suffering. But he's pointing to the resurrection as the reassurance of Christ's return. And so when we are discouraged, wondering, is God ever going to come back and set all things right? Is he ever going to come back and restore these relationships that have been broken? Is he ever going to come back and end oppression and bring justice? Is he ever going to come back and remove the presence of sin in my life and in this world? The resurrection. The victory is already secured. We're just waiting for him to come home, bring us home and start the parade. I wonder how often we actually think about his coming. I think it probably was easier in the midst of real suffering that this church and many other churches experience today than it probably is in our lives. It's much easier for us with all that we have, with all the blessings we have, with all the busyness we have, to get wrapped up in our little worlds. Forget the big story that God has set a time in which he will return to make all things new. The gospel impact, it changes everything. It changes our past, changes what we do in the present, and it will certainly change our future. In this journey of faith, we're going to have seasons of hardship, struggles, times where we doubt the truth, feel insecure about the power of the gospel, maybe even wonder that I genuinely believe it. But be reassured of the truth and power of the gospel by seeing the impact of the gospel. I eventually did find a little bit more success in running. When I say little. What I would start doing, I, I started running with my buddy Sam. Now, Sam is not like me. He's, he's an actual runner. He's built like a runner. He's been running for years. And so I would start to go on runs with him. And, you know, I'd still, it's not like my body didn't get tired, didn't have aches just because I was running with Sam. I still felt all of that pain and discomfort. And I still wondered, why on earth am I going on this three-mile marathon? I just wanted to be done. I just wanted to throw in the towel. Whatever advantages, health advantages running would give me did not seem worthwhile. But I was with Sam. And here's how Sam would encourage me. 
he would say when I was feeling down, can you go one more block? Yeah, yeah, I I can go one more block. Now, mind you, we're like two miles away from our apartment. (laughs) But we get to the end of that block. Can you go one more block? Yeah, yeah, I can keep going one more block. This is the tactic he would use to keep me going. The tactic we use for ourselves, the tactic we use to encourage one another, is to be reassured by the gospel, its truth and its power, by looking at the impact of the gospel. We do it daily with ourselves. We do it throughout the week as we meet with one another. Certainly we do it every Sunday morning here. So stick to it and keep going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing ways that your gospel has radically impacted and uprooted our lives. We thank you that you did not want to leave us in sin and sent your son to redeem us We thank you that you have given everything we need in order to make it to the end. Father, for those of us that are struggling, those of us that are just exhausted and just want to throw in the towel, give us the strength to keep going. Give us the encouragement to keep going. Allow your word and your people to support us and keep going. Amen. Thank you.